We hope you'll be blessed and inspired and challenged and motivated by this fresh word from Christian Heritage Church. It's a great day to be at Christian Heritage because we have a very special speaker. Uh, Ryan Sprague is um, serving now as the director of the Pregnancy Help and Information Center, also known as the FI Center. Well, after winning a national championship on the 1999 Florida State Seminoles football team, yes, thank you, thank you, okay, Ryan began competing beyond the Doak Campbell Stadium. God used his decade of serving as a pastor up in Minnesota, North Carolina, uh, to nurture his passion for helping families. Now, with more than 16 years of marriage and six children, one, two, three, four, five, six, thank you, four boys, two girls, yeah, he's even more enthusiastic about partnering with families as they fight for the purity and strength of their homes. He currently serves as the director for the Phi Center, whether it's a book or a blog or an article or delivering a talk, Brian strives to present a life-changing truth in a clear and creative way. He knows that words are powerful. Even he reflected on John 4, verse 41, and because of his words, the words of Jesus, many more became believers. And throughout his day, whether he's serving with a Fisender, serving as a dad, or a husband, or a son-in-law, or a son, or just someone out in the community, he wants his words to bring life-changing truth to others. Help me welcome Ryan Sprague. I'm going to have to change the whole theme of my talk to disappointment, um, because after those introductions, I just want to prepare you guys for disappointment. <laughs> no way I can live up to the idea of being a little bit famous or um, even those lofty thoughts. And I appreciate very much this church, the opportunity to be here, to be a part of this, and uh, y'all collectively, what you've done to help me get ready for this morning from Wendy, up at the soundboard, getting ready to put videos in for me, to Zach, getting our microphone checked, and this group up here, y'all, I don't know what, I don't know what Israel Halton calls his band, but I thought I was listening to them this morning, y'all, that was incredible. Um, I don't get that every day in every church in this community, that's a really big thing. So well done, well done, Tom and the praise team, that was that's something else. Um, I want to open up with just a little joke um, about our story, about my family, and about my wife and I to kind of give you a story of, yes, we have six kids, and if anybody deserves applause for having six kids, it is my, my, my wife, because um, she does incredible work in doing that, but she's a little woman, she's uh, five feet, three inches tall, I'm six foot five, and uh, even after six kids, she still only weighs beautiful, um, she weighs about that much. And she also knows that even in that sort of thing, that she also, um, in her, her age, is she's also beautiful. Uh, I was told that is the correct answer to both of those questions. How heavy am I? Beautiful. How old am I? Beautiful. And I'm just happy with that. But that's who she is. She's, she's actually five foot three. She's a, she's a petite woman. I'm a very large guy. And one day, I had made a mistake uh, in the day, and I was trying to figure out how I could make amends. So I thought, hey, what I'll do is I'll get some chocolate, and I'll get some flowers, and I'll get home early after work and I'll surprise her. That'd be a good idea. So I did that. I got some chocolate and I got some flowers and I snuck into the house and she was in the, in the bathroom doing whatever she was doing and she didn't know why I was there yet. And I walked up behind her and it's like, hey, 
right? Before I could finish that sentence, there was a shot to my throat. And as these things, the chocolate and the flowers fall out of my hands and I can't compose myself, there's another shot across the bridge of my nose. And I can't breathe and I can't see. She's got her hands up on the countertop and she has donkey kicked me in the chest, falling back onto the ground to where I was out. Surprise, a woman. And you never know what you're going to get, I found out. So I tell that story, and my wife tells me, they're going to know that it's not a real story. I mean, they're going to know you're making that up. Because there is no way in the world anybody in that congregation is going to believe that you actually showed up with chocolate and flowers. I said, yeah, yeah, that may be truth in that story, too. Uh, you guys should know, I was doing a little research on Christian heritage, and I saw some old sermons that were given here. And I saw that recently Steve preached a sermon that was 60 minutes long. Um, so I felt freedom to know that I could also have that kind of time this morning, which is fantastic, because that'll get me at least through my introduction, and then we'll be able to get home, um, which will be cool. So just so you know a little bit of who I am, I am at a pregnancy center, and it is not common, believe it or not, for a guy to go from being a, a football player to going and working pastorally in a church, primarily, almost exclusively, staffed with men, to finding himself working at a pregnancy center, working with a staff almost completely of women, and our client base being almost exclusively women. It is not a normal path, vocationally, for people to go down, but yet, here I sit. That's where God has me at this current season in life. And, I, and my journey was unexpected. And it was also unexpected to one day see some folks from Christian Heritage show up at the Phi Center and get talking to Steve and find out that we'd already done ministry together in a roundabout way. That one of the reasons Christian Heritage and Phi Center got connected in that way is because we had been a part of a woman trying to create an adoption plan for her child. And part of what she needed was she needed to get out of a really bad situation. And she had been relocated to Oklahoma. And when she was relocated to Oklahoma through this adoption ministry, she was partnered up with uh, someone in Steve's family, the church that they're a part of. So we had this cool connection from the word go as far as Christian heritage and the Phi Center and the work that we're doing. And that's effectively how it got to be that I'm standing in front of you here today is an unexpected journey into a pregnancy center and an unexpected journey of finding out that, that there's a cool thing about what God is doing across the country that united us in Tallahassee about something a young woman needed to be relocated in Oklahoma. And that's where it was. And so here I stand to you today to talk a little bit about the Phi Center, but more importantly, I want to preach to you from the Word of God and help you hopefully clearly understand something. So I'm going to pray for myself and pray for us as we get into this. So God, we give you praise and we give you glory. We give you honor. This is your church. These are your people. These are your words, Lord. Help us all to be faithful to listen or faithful to apply what it is that you would have for us this morning, that you ultimately would be glorified, that your son would be praised. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It's been a big week. If you guys haven't been paying attention, this is a significant week. We're going to look back on this week for decades in history books. This week will be held out. And this week we had the Thai cave rescue, right? We had all those boys and that soccer coach get rescued from the Thai cave. And that's huge, right? When I was a kid, we had one little girl stuck in a well, right? My kids have 13 people stuck in a cave two and a half miles under the earth. But it was kind of neat to reflect on those two stories and remember where I was thinking about baby Jessica and my kids there watching this rescue happen in Thailand. But that was big this week. And we'll be talking about it. This is the end of the World Cup. Like right now, the World Cup final is going on in Russia. And there's people that may not be here this morning because they're watching France and Croatia play soccer. But that's a significant move. All around the world, people's eyes are fixed on Russia watching soccer. And here in the United States, we had this big moment of, of Donald Trump announcing his recommendation for the Supreme Court and Brett Kavanaugh. Right? And that has the world, the commentary talking. Everybody's talking about this. We got the Thai cave rescue. We got the World Cup. We got Brett Kavanaugh. There's conversations starting. There's significant events that have happened that will affect history going forward out of this particular week. And that Brett Kavanaugh one in particular is appropriate for what we're talking about today. Because most people, 
when they're talking about whether or not this man is going to be appointed to the Supreme Court, the issue is with Roe v. Wade. Right? There's people who think, oh my goodness, he's going to do something bad to Roe v. Wade. And there's other people thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to support Roe v. Wade. And what's going to happen if he gets there in the case? Then that's the debate, right? If you watch the political people on TV, they're talking about that. People are writing about it in newspaper columns. The Roe v. Wade thing is a big deal. And Brett Kavanaugh's brought that to light. So this morning, I'm going to take a very, very brief history and just kind of make sure we all understand what Roe v. Wade is. In short, Roe v. Wade is a court case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. What happened was, in Texas in the 70s, abortion was illegal. You couldn't get one. Unless there was a particular extreme circumstance for the life of the mother, it was against the law. So what happened was a couple of attorneys said, hey, we don't think that's good. And they found a woman, her name was Norma McCorvey, who was pregnant. And they said, hey, can we utilize your circumstances to create a case to go and challenge the state of Texas and challenge this ruling? The guy who was the district attorney in Dallas County was a guy named Henry Wade, which is why it's called Roe v. Wade. It was just the district attorney of Dallas County. That guy's famous, too. He was also the district attorney for Jack Ruby, um, prosecuting Jack Ruby for the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald. If you remember that, that's Lee Harvey Oswald, right? Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. Anyhow, that's who that is, Roe v. Wade. Norma McCorvey wanted to be anonymous. She didn't want her name out there, so she went by Jane Roe. Henry Wade, Roe v. Wade. So what happened was, and it's important to understand, is Roe v. Wade did not legalize abortion. People sometimes get that confused and they think about what's happening, but it didn't legalize abortion. All Roe v. Wade did was it took the case that started in Dallas, Texas, worked its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and what they ruled was that the, the, the 14th Amendment's privacy clause extended to the right of a woman, and it said it specifically like this, it is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. That's all it said. It simply said that her privacy trumps whatever things that we might feel in our heart. So it allowed the woman to be able to go and do that privately. And it freed up states around the country to be able to put stuff in place to allow women to get abortions and not have that restriction on them. So then what happened was state by state, people began to press and press and press. And now you have more and more states where abortion is free and legal. And Roe v. Wade opened the door for it to be there. But there's not, the Supreme Court doesn't create law, right? That's the executive branch's job. The Supreme Court simply evaluates whether or not whatever happened was constitutional. And they simply write privacy is applicable there. I am not a constitutional scholar or a legal expert in any way. You've got folks here that are. But the point of the matter is, that's what Roe v. Wade did. It allowed the privacy clause in the 14th Amendment to extend to a woman about the decision of whether or not she wanted to terminate her pregnancy. Okay? So Roe really, though, as we think about it, is not the tip of the iceberg when you think about it. It's kind of the stinging smoke that comes at the end of a fire. It is a culmination. It is not a catalyst. The modern political debate surrounding Roe v. Wade is a little bit of a distraction, in my opinion, from the larger moral crisis that we're finding. Almost all the time, almost all the time, when you have somebody who's contemplating an abortion, it is not because they're in a faithful marriage and they're excited about having kids and something happened. Normally, you have a single woman. And normally, you have a situation where that baby came into being and the situation surrounding its conception was not a good one. There's sin swirling around there. And it is the sin of promiscuity. It is the sin of other things that leads to a situation where someone says, hey, wait a minute, I don't know that I can handle this baby. Hey, wait a minute, I don't know that I'm ready for this. I need an option. Hey, abortion is an option I can consider. And they process. So all the debate about whether or not Roe v. Wade should be legal and all that sort of stuff gets us distracted as a church from the moral issues that are really at play. Now, I'm one who believes Roe v. Wade should be outlawed. I believe that because it's important as a country for us to kind of say we value humanity. We value people, regardless of how small they are, what color they are, what their education status is, what their capacity to do things are, their dependency level, whatever the case may be, I believe it's incumbent upon a place to be able to say, humans matter. 
And because humans matter, now everything else comes forward. Now, if Roe v. Wade were overturned tomorrow, it wouldn't end abortion. It wouldn't. If Roe v. Wade were expanded tomorrow, I don't even think it would change how many abortions occur. The fact of the matter is, almost every woman that I've ever met that is considering an abortion would tell you she doesn't think it's a good choice. Almost all of them would tell you they want to be moms one day. Almost all of them would tell you they'd be excited about parenting. But the circumstances at that moment in time are intense. They're overwhelming. She feels smothered. She feels hopeless. She feels lost. But she would tell you that's not really what they ultimately wanted. She didn't want that on her resume. She didn't want to be pregnant as a 21-year-old. She didn't want to be pregnant as a 15-year-old. That wasn't her, her picture, how she wanted life to go. But yet here she sits. That's what oftentimes is happening. So we've got to consider those things that abortion is a symptom of our moral sickness. And the Bible calls this moral sickness sin. And we all struggle with sin, guys. All of us have this sin thing. Whatever the sin may be that we most have identified with in our lives, or whatever the sin that may ensnare us most often in our life, it's sin. It's this abandonment from God's ways. It's the abandonment from the way that God wants us to live and the way that God wants us to do things. It is a life that is not glorifying the Father, but glorifying ourselves. It is sin. And there's some big popular ones in the social conversation that are in the political world that can get a lot of the attention and allow us to feel kind of okay about our sin that nobody really talks about all that much. But we have to remember it affects all of us. See, today we're going to explore a general response to sin and how it applies to abortion. Specifically, women who have a child growing within them whose conception was a result of sinful circumstances. In simple terms, a crisis pregnancy like the Phi Center is one where a child is on the way and the mother most of the time is not married. And that baby's father is either irresponsible, it's like, hey, yeah, that's your situation, you deal with it, or perhaps he's a criminal. And now the mother is looking at being a single parent. And maybe a single parent who's being abused currently by the child's father. It is a bad set of circumstances when a woman shows up to us. Sin swirling. See, having a baby and raising it is very hard for a faithfully married couple. A husband and wife to do it together, raising a child is hard. You can only imagine how stressful, how frightening, how difficult it is if you're not a single parent, that being a single parent actually is. There's reasons that God intended children to have both a mother and a father who are married to each other. At least one of those reasons is so they could help one another. I can't tell you how many times I was up at 2.30 in the morning rocking a kid and I was so stressed out, so tired, so exhausted. I found myself kind of frustrated with this little baby. And I had to go and like wake my wife up and say, you need to take over for a minute because I'm not well. Right? And I had support. I had a church that loved me. I've got family that loves me. I had babysitters available. I didn't have to worry about where, whether or not I was going to be able to buy groceries that month. All kinds of support. All kinds of resources. And yet I still got to the point of being so stressed out, I was wondering what I might do to this baby if it continued to scream. Imagine being by yourself. Imagine not having those resources. Doing parenting alone is possibly the most difficult mission a person can have. It's a challenging thing. And I believe most people are highly aware of this. And I think it's one of the reasons abortions happen so frequently. We know the single parent route is hard. We know, did you know, that the number one indicator for poverty is being a single parent. It's not education level, it's not race, it's not ethnic, it's not where you live, but a single parent has the highest probability of being in poverty of any other factor that is out there. We know that, I think, which is why when we think about, can I have this baby now? Is the situation right now? The idea of abortion begins to make sense because that journey, that life, doesn't seem good. See, if babies were easy and they provided nothing but blissful moments, we wouldn't be talking about abortion. People end the lives of babies in their womb because parenting that child would have been very, very hard. 
It's where it's coming from. Sacrifice is at the top of the job description for any parent. We sacrifice sleep. We sacrifice money. We sacrifice free time. We sacrifice hobbies. We sacrifice friends. We sacrifice clean shirts. We sacrifice control. We are called to sacrifice all kinds of things all throughout the process. And we're going to talk more about the sacrifice aspect of this in a little bit later. But right now, I simply want us to realize that what we're dealing with is sin. Just sin. And different manifestations. The particular thing we're talking about is abortion, but this is just sin. And there is sin ensnaring us all over the place. When we think about abortion. And the circumstances leading up to one. And the sin in general is our focus this morning. And I want to establish this up front. Because this is easy for someone to check out right now. And I don't want to lose anybody in this sermon because you think this is a sermon on abortion and somehow this is inapplicable to you. First of all, this is not a sermon about abortion. This is a sermon about sin and our response to sin. Have any of you guys seen the movie Jurassic Park? I hope someone other than me has. If you ever watch that movie, you'll watch it again after what I'm about to tell you. But Jurassic Park is not a movie about dinosaurs. Jurassic Park is a movie about a man opening himself up to the idea of being a father and being willing to one day start a family. If you watch the trajectory between the main actor, he first off saying, I want nothing to do with kids. I find them stinky and irritating and annoying. He doesn't want kids. He doesn't really want the idea of having a spouse. He's living his own independent life. Throughout the course of the movie, these dinosaurs put him into situations where he's got to start to give himself on behalf of these children. And by the end of the movie, he's cuddling these two kids and he's holding tight to his potential wife and he has opened himself up to the idea of hey being a husband and being a father would be an all right thing the dinosaurs are simply the backdrop they're simply the way in which we get to understand the point and this morning abortion is the dinosaurs what i want us to wrestle with is the idea of sin in general our response to sin what god does to sin how we should respond to god and it pertains to our sin and abortion is a way we're simply going to tell the story but the focus is not abortion so the applicability for us this morning is to all of us Unless you sit here this morning and sin is not a concern of yours, this morning will be applicable. Second law, if this was a sermon on abortion, it would be applicable to you. Your pastor is out riding a motorcycle across the country with thousands of people because he is trying to speak up for a marginalized people group. People who don't get attention in the media, people who don't have books written about them, people who don't oftentimes come into our thought pattern when we're thinking about care and concern, speaking up for the marginalized. It's one of the things we're called to do as Christians. We are called to know where there's people who need care and empathy and support. And we are called to be that, to be the hands and feet of Christ. Whatever you do unto the least of these, you have done also to me. Why do you visit the prisoner in jail? They're marginalized. And just as Steve is out riding his motorcycle to draw attention to the fact that these Native American peoples need our attention. So today I am standing before you talking about the unborn saying they need our attention too. They are also marginalized. So you may not be one whose charge it is to go out and speak up for the unborn or or go and volunteer at a pregnancy center. But you as a Christian are called to speak up and to speak out for the marginalized, whomever the marginalized are that are part of your story. Steve has a direct connection, doesn't he? the native american people so he's stepping and utilizing that part of his story that god has put in him to utilize his platform now to speak up on their behalf and i'm doing the same and i would encourage you christians to do the same we need to be speaking up for the marginalized we need to be speaking up for the oppressed for the wounded and for the hurt and this is what we're doing this morning so it's applicable to you as well if that's what we were doing but it is not all that we're doing but this morning we're going to look at psalm 51 If you want to find that in your Bible, it'll be up on the screen, but if you want to find out, I'm going to give you a little context. If you don't know King David, David is a pretty terrible thing. Oftentimes we think about David in a good light. 
We think about David as a pretty good guy, but he did some pretty terrible things. And Psalm 51, that we're about to read in a minute, is the end of something terrible that David did. See, what David did is he was up doing his kingly thing, and he saw a woman, and he decided that he wanted that woman. And that woman was married to a man named Uriah. David also was married. And he saw that woman, and he said, I want her. So he sent his guys, his guard, his minions, go and get that woman for me. So they go and they take that woman and they bring her back to him. And he spends time with her in a way that only a husband should spend time with his wife. And he sends her away. Then come to find out she is pregnant with his child. And he realizes, oh no, I've got a scandal. I've got a problem. What will I do? Got an idea. We're going to call her husband home. He's going to come home. They will spend time together as husband and wife should. Then when the baby comes, everyone will assume that is their natural biological child. I will be free. All will be well. Except Uriah comes home. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. My men are out working and serving. I'm not going to come home and be with my wife in that way. I will not do it. David's got a problem. His escape clause has been taken from him. So what does David do? He conspires with one of his generals, say, here's what I want you to do. Put Uriah out on the front. Once the danger comes, retreat everybody back, but don't tell Uriah, and then he will be killed. And Uriah dies. And then David takes this woman into his own home to be his wife. It's a horrible story. This is David, right? The Goliath killer. This is David, the little shepherd boy who was chosen to be king. This is the man who was a man after God's own heart. And all the other accolades we have about David, this is the king who did this to Bathsheba, who did this to Uriah, who has this on his record. Imagine the context of that today. Imagine if one of our sitting presidents who was married took an interest in one of our active military men's wives. And while they were deployed, he took that wife, he sent his secret service to go and to get her and to bring her into his home so that he could be with her in that way. And then if she became pregnant, he conspired with his generals to have that man killed to eliminate his mistakes. Can you imagine? The scandal of that is unthinkable. And yet this is what David did. This is where we are. When you start reading this story, this is what's happening. I mean, this is the heart, by the way, of the whole Me Too movement. You've got a man who is in power coercing a woman to be with him in that way. Utilizing his power and his authority to leverage her to his benefit. This is why so many women are speaking out. Producers and directors and CEOs using their power, using their authority, using the idea that they have that to be able to take something for themselves. This is the Me Too challenge. This is precisely what David did and it was horrible. And guys, by God's grace... Hear that. By God's grace, David got caught. Don't miss that. Some of us in here this morning need to get caught by God's grace. There's some people sitting in this church that need God's grace in the form of someone discovering their internet history. Or someone seeing the text on their cell phone by God's grace. There's some of us in here by God's grace that need our financial dealings exposed There's some of us, by God's grace, that need the way that we angrily treat our wife or our kids exposed. We need the grace of God to come into our life like a blinding light and let our sin come to fruition and come to be seen so that God can kill it. Because right now, many of us are hiding. Right now, many of us have sin that is entangling us and we are on a journey. And that journey leads only to death. And God wants to mortify that sin. And one of the ways He does it is He brings it to light. And that's exactly 
what God did with David. And he did it through the prophet Nathan. And what happened was Nathan came forward and told him the story about a rich man and sheep. And David came to realize the sin that he had committed and how many people his sin had affected. When Nathan said, you are that man, David. What happened was David realized his wrong and at some point he sat down and he wrote Psalm 51. We're going to begin reading. But before we read it, I want you to notice a couple things about what David did. It was one, he confessed. Two, he repented. And then he began to make restitution. But notice Nathan, because this may be a part of your life one day. You may be a Nathan and you're called to confront somebody in their sin. Notice Nathan had a very intimate and very close relationship with God. And it was out of faithfulness and obedience to God that he confronted Nathan, not out of a desire just to confront David. It's easy for us to get caught up and I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the policeman. I'm going to be the one that checks. I'm going to call out the sin in your life. Nathan was operating out of God calling him to do it in that moment. It was an act of obedience and faithfulness to God, not out of his own interest. And two, Nathan loved David, but he was not going because of David. Nathan was going because of God. God's interests were in mind. He was faithful enough to God that he was willing to let David get mad at him. Generally speaking, if you confront someone in their sin, they're not going to give you a hug. It's not going to be their response to you immediately. It was eventually, but that's the third part of it, is that David's response was the key. He responded in humility. He allowed truth to humble him and it led him to repentance. And I pray that all of us would respond the same way should someone ever confront us with our sin. That we would be humbled by the truth. We would be humbled by God's holiness and we would repent and we would seek that light. So David was moved to make restitution. But understand something real quick as we talk about that. There's no way you and I can make restitution to God. We cannot fix our sin problem. There's nothing that you can do or I can do that can make things right with God. We cannot pay enough, do enough, give enough, love enough, serve enough to fix the gap between us and God that was caused by sin. There's no restitution that can be done that would make any difference. That was only because Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's how our sin is paid for. However, on this level, between you and I, if I do something wrong to you, I can do things to try to make it better. I can do things to try to make our relationship again. I can do things to try to restore trust. See, listen, just because the cross of Christ occurred doesn't mean that if you did something unkind to your wife that you shouldn't also buy her flowers. You can't say, my sin has been paid for. Forgive me. You're okay. I'm okay. Everything's okay. Forgive me. Cross. Like, we don't get to do that. Because the cross of Christ happened, we don't get to say to one of our kids who we might have lashed out in anger, who might have done something impulsively and hurt them. Because we have the cross of Christ, that doesn't mean that we don't have to go and try to repair those memories. It doesn't mean we don't have to go and try to make better and rich, sweet memories with our child. The forgiveness extended by a fellow person that is rooted in obedience to Christ because of what He did for us doesn't mean that we can't work to make restitution to try to repair that relationship. That is good. That is part of what we're called to do as believers. But that doesn't have anything to do with this forgiveness. That is done only by the work of God, only by the blood of Christ, and it is only His work that can save and redeem us. So don't get that what David's reaction is confused. His goal for restitution, his desire of what he's going to do, is not to reconcile to him and God. It's to try to restore people unto him. Try to restore back the trust of people who saw their king do what he did. It's a different kind of a story. Alright, so Psalm 51, starting in verse 1, he reads... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit. This is the confession and the repentance part of what David was saying. He was acknowledging God's holiness. He was acknowledging his own impurity. And he was recognizing that God is going to be the one to have to do the work. This is the pattern for all of us dealing with any sin. God is holy. We are not. And if this thing's going to be fixed, God is going to have to do the work. That's our story. And we have that through the cross. We have that through Christ. The work has been done. So now what we have to do is realize and credit it to our account. The work has been done. God is holy. I am not. But through the blood of Christ, I now can be redeemed and restored through Him. This is our story. So that's the whole concept of confession that He does there. An awareness. But now watch verse 13. It changes and we'll focus more time here. David starts to talk about this restitution idea. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud for your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David began this section with, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Focus on the first word of that sentence, then. There's quite a lot going on in that word. That word means in case of or after that, or because of that, or therefore. It's the second part of what the teachers in the world refer to as an if-then clause. If this occurs, then this can occur. If this happens, then this can happen. David gave us the then. Then he will teach transgressors God's ways. Then he will go about doing these works of restitution. Then he will go about trying to reclaim the glory for God that he gave him through his throne. Then he will do all these good works. Then, right? But what's the if? What is the if? The preceding verses give us the if. It's pretty significant. If. Listen to this. If God has mercy on him. If God blots out his transgressions. If God washes away his iniquity. If God cleanses him from his sin. If God cleanses him with hyssop. If God washes him. If God hides his face from David's sin. If God blots out his iniquity. If God creates in him a pure heart. If God renews in him a right spirit. If God does not cast away his presence from him. If God does not take his Holy Spirit away from him. If God restores the joy of his salvation. And if God grants him a willing and sustaining spirit, then, then David will teach transgressors his way. See, God must do the work. It is not about you and your attempts at holiness. God will not be moved by your works. Listen to what David wrote. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That is what God is looking for. That's what opens up the door to God's amazing grace. When sin has us, our response should be brokenness. 
If someone were to be the one to confront us in our sin, our response should be a contrite heart. Not more effort. Not more work. It begins with the brokenness. God, you are holy. God, you are pure. God, you are right when you judge. And I am right to be judged. But watch how David opens up this next stanza. He says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. See, David is struggling in this poem. He is keenly aware of his wickedness, partly because of the literal blood on his hands and partly because Nathan brought it to light for all to see. This is a man who sees himself at the feet of a judge who should justly condemn him. He is professing his guilt and he is pleading for his soul. Deliver me, he cries. Listen to David's brokenness and his contrition in his words from earlier in the psalm. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, speaking to God, have I sinned and then what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. And that's all true. David is keenly self-aware in that moment. He's accurate in his assessment of himself. And guys, listen up. It is true for you as well, church, that prior to your faith in Christ, before you knew Christ, those were also true things of yourself and they were true of me. I was caught in my sin. My transgression and my sin was always before me, just as yours was. And if you have not placed your trust in Christ this morning, if you are not what you would call a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, that is true of you. Your sin and your transgression is before you. And if God judges you, He will be right to judge you. Your condemnation would be on you. Just as it was on me. Just as it was on any friend that you know who calls themselves a Christian here this morning. Just as it was on David. None of us were or are perfect. None of us were free from the guilt of sin. However, what is also true is that God is merciful. He has unfailing love and He has great compassion. David knows that his sin is before him, but that God's grace is right there with it. He knows that sin leads to death and that scares him. But he also knows that God is merciful and that gives him hope. His understanding of God's love is accurate and it is life-giving, but many people misunderstand. So often what we want to do is we want to say God is love. And because He is love, He will ignore this sin thing. Or we want to say God is all about truth. And because God is true and pure, He's going to ignore the love thing. And both extremes are inaccurate. What the truth is, God is holy. God is pure. God will call sin, sin, and be right to judge And yet God is also love and he sent his son down to take the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I can be redeemed and restored to our creator. Not just to live with God in eternity, but to have the freedom of life in Christ today. This is the story of the gospel. David is preaching the gospel in Psalm 51. God is love and God is also holy. See, there's parallels as we get into David's sin and with abortion. See, the sin that David did was a sin of the sexual variety, followed by the death of someone who had nothing to do with it. Uriah died because of David's sin. The innocent dying for the guilty is a selfish inversion of the gospel. 
See, David's situation and the situation for many considering abortion are similar to the Jerusalem mob looking at their Savior yelling, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! When our sin catches up to us and we can't see beyond our sin to the compassion of God, fear will take over and we will fight to redeem ourselves. We try to make it all go away. Like Adam and Eve with the fig leaf, we try to cover it up. But we can't. This is the great lie of abortion. While some want to ignore human biology and foolishly say that those aborted aren't humans, some will grant that they are human and they simply aren't persons and they don't have rights and we shouldn't worry about them. Or others will say, yes, that is a human and yes, that is a person, but the fact that it's a woman's right to choose is the most important thing and they are free to choose to kill their child. None of those lies are the great lie. The great lie, the more insidious lie, the more soul-crushing lie, is that abortion fixes something. And it doesn't. Abortion will not make your life easier. Abortion will not make your life better. Abortion is not a harmless solution to a problem. None of that is true. See, dealing with our sin by holding someone else accountable has never worked. This is true of any sin or of sin in the world in general. The manifestations of this phenomenon are myriad. We see it all over the place. But this is the scandal of the cross. And hear this. What you and I want is we want someone else to pay the price for our sin. When you get down to yourself and you're wrestling with it, the whole idea of blaming, saying it's someone else's fault, your kids see it from the youngest age, right? Stop yelling, it's because of my brother, right? Stop crying, it's because of my sister. Don't, it's because of the dog. Whatever the case may be, we don't want to have to pay the price for our own sin. And what's crazy is God has given us that. He's saying you don't have to pay the price for your sin. You don't have to, and we want that. But we know it doesn't work. We know from forever, by us simply saying they did it. Even if that person gets the consequences, we don't feel a sense of freedom because they got it. We know that on this level, on the personal level, the idea of someone else paying the price for our sin doesn't work. So when we hear God said, I gave you my son and he paid the price for your sin, we don't believe it. We don't trust it. So what do we do? We grab a fig leaf. We try to make it right ourselves. We try to fix it. We press back into church. We read more. We do more. We volunteer. We give more money. We find something we can do to try to make ourselves feel somewhat like we have control over this issue. We're going to try to make restitution to God. We're going to try to cross the gap that can't be crossed. Fig leaves all over the place. And it cannot be done. Think of Adam blaming Eve, right? We know the story. Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat the fruit. If you eat of it, you're going to die. They go and eat the fruit. What does Adam do? That woman you gave me, right? That's huge. The consequences for their sin was death. Adam said, take her. He was making a sacrifice. He was willing to let his wife die so that he wouldn't be held accountable for his sin. People have been doing this since the beginning of time because we know sacrifice is necessary. But what we do is we get the sacrifice confused. See, in David's case, he called Uriah home. That's my fig leaf. I'll make my sin go away. David will come home. He'll take care of that with Bathsheba and all will go away. It doesn't happen. So what's he do? He makes a sacrifice. Uriah dies. With abortion, the baby is a sacrifice. The fig leaves are all the justifications. It's not a person. It's a clump of self. It's not really a baby. It, has, it doesn't even feel pain yet. Those are our fig leaves. Those are us trying to make it all go away. But the sacrifice is the baby. It is lies leading to death, which leads to more lies. 
It's tragic. It hasn't worked. It can't work. It won't work. We simply cannot fix our sin by ourselves, even if we sacrifice someone else to do it. However, this, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Please hear this, church. Abortion is a gospel issue. From the very beginning, we see the pattern. Adam offering Eve. Cain killing Abel. David killing Uriah. The mob stoning Stephen. Parents aborting their children. We know death and sin go together. But without comprehending the gospel, the wrong person dies and the price for sin is left unpaid. We cannot do it. It is only when Jesus died And He paid the perfect price of shed blood that redemption occurs and salvation is possible. The innocent sacrificing themselves on behalf of the guilty. See, an abortion is the inversion of the redemption story. That one is the guilty killing the innocent to save themselves. That is not the gospel. That is not the story of our Savior. It is backwards. And this is why, church, it is a gospel issue. This is why the church is leading the charge. This is why the church must lead the charge. And this is why places like the Phi Center and the other two centers that are in this community and the centers that are all across this country, this movement that is around the world of people in the church coming together to say, young woman, we will help. Young woman, we are here for you. Young woman, you don't have to make that choice. We will love you. We will support you. We will care for you. You need clothes, we'll provide them. You need a place to live, we'll provide it. You need extra parents, we'll provide them. Whatever you need, we will do. We will help you. We will be the hands and feet that you need. Please don't take the life of your child. That's the pregnancy center movement. And by the way, the majority of the people that work in the pregnancy center movement are people who have got abortion in their past. And they are been where David has been. And they know their sin is before them. And they know there's blood on their hands. And someone has helped them to see the light and the truth. And when they were wrestling with that, they also saw the mercy and the grace of their father. And now, like David, all those ifs were categorized. If they had been clean. If they'd been right. Then. So now they're going out and they're trying to help other women avoid going down the same road. It is a beautiful ministry. They call it a ministry of converts. Church, this is God's fight. And we are His chosen soldiers. So fight we must. Armed with our belts of truth and our breastplates of righteousness and our shields of faith and our helmets of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, we fight. We go to war. And let me tell you our battle strategy at the Fight Center. Let me tell you what it looks like for us. Motivated by what I've already shared, the three points of our attack are compassion, support, and hope. It is our conviction that almost every parent we encounter that is considering abortion, is considering it because they are terrified of some monster of circumstance. It's a circumstance. Sometimes that beast is financial. Sometimes that beast is relational. Sometimes it's educational. We hear about all kinds of monsters in people's lives. Abusive boyfriends, being cut off financially, not being able to finish school, self-loathing, a potential breakup, self-doubt growling in their minds saying they could never be good parents. These beasts are snapping and snarling and spitting at these women and the deceiver slithers in and says, if you will just sacrifice the baby, those monsters will go away. That's the lie. That sacrificing the child will make their circumstances better. That's the soul-crushing, child-killing deception that we are fighting. Let me tell you what, 
Abortion has never moved somebody from poverty into independence. Abortion has never made an abusive boyfriend become a good dude. Abortion has never made a, a father who's unwilling to take care of his daughter all of a sudden see the light. Abortion doesn't change those circumstances. Now you've still got the same circumstances and you've got to wrestle with what just happened. I want you to hear something. Church, the mother is never our opponent. The woman is never our enemy. She is never the threat. The woman is to Satan what he wants her baby to be to her. Let me say that again. The woman is to Satan what he wants the baby to be to her. Our job, church, is to truthfully love them both. Satan is out there to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he wants to destroy the heart of the woman who is in there considering an abortion. He wants her to die. So he tells her, you know what make it better? Let that baby die. She is to Satan what he wants the baby to be to her. He's a deceiver, he's a destroyer, and he's a killer. She often arrives, this woman, in despair, void of hope. And our team is there to try to expend, extend the compassion that David wrote about in his psalm. They are there to provide the support available through the Five Center because of places like this church. Because of people like you who support us. It is the support from the local church and individuals that make up that local church that allows a place like the Five Center to be open to meet those needs. Your pastor Steve is away. We talked about it. He's on the Hokahe, right? That motorcycle challenge. And I watched one of his sermons. It was about tell them. You remember he rode the motorcycle in here and he had this cool leather vest on. And he was talking about tell them. That he's riding that motorcycle not to get away with his boys and ride his bike. You know, not to just do some exciting thing. He was going because he wants to tell them the truth of the gospel. And guys, the Native American population is a generally underserved people group, as we talked about. They face all kinds of hardships. And these circumstances oftentimes coincide with high rates of abortion. You oftentimes see the highest rates of abortion in areas where there's poverty, areas where there's broken homes, areas where there's a sense of hopelessness. That's where you're going to find it. It's not the only place you're going to find it. We also see it with affluent people who are married and stable and could easily afford another child. And it's just not convenient for them at the time. But the majority of it's happening where there's poverty. So because of that, I went and looked up Native Americans and abortion, and I found this story. Um, I want to share it with you. This is just a testimonial story from a Native American woman who was in a situation that led her to make a choice. These are her words starting now. She says, Coming from a Native American reservation where the dropout rate is about 50% and teen pregnancy is high, I felt pretty accomplished being in the city and in college. So when I got pregnant, my life was over. Or so I thought. I told my then boyfriend, now husband, and he was beyond happy, In the following days and weeks, we talked of things like names and and outfits. The easy stuff. Then, reality set in. I'd have to move home. Home being on a reservation with very little resources. I had no idea who'd care for my child. I'd have to give up school until I was financially stable enough to return. I remember talking with my boyfriend about abortion and how it was the right thing to do. Doing everything to justify my reasons. He supported me from the beginning. The next day, I changed my mind. I decided I was going to take life by the horns and I was going to raise this child. But the following day, I wasn't ready to be a mother. This was an ongoing pattern for almost two months. Feeling depressed and losing my hair from the stress, I decided to walk into a clinic to see what my options were. I can't remember the doctor's name for the life of me, but she made me feel comfortable almost immediately. She never persuaded me, 
but instead listened. I made an appointment that day. After leaving the clinic, I went to the nearest Dairy Queen and spent the last of my money on a milkshake. For the first time in weeks, I felt like I could breathe. The following week, I had my abortion. In the waiting room, there was a young girl, no older than 16, who cried every two minutes. Her boyfriend, much older than her, told her to stop crying, not being very supportive. I remember sitting there, feeling so sorry for her. In the, quote, surgery room, I remember asking the nurse if she was okay, and she reassured me that she was just young. I still think of her. Next week marks one year. It's something I do not regret, although I feel guilty about it from time to time. I know I couldn't have cared for my child the way he or she deserved. All I know is that I'm very fortunate to have walked into a clinic without having to fight protesters at the door. Oh, how I wish there would have been protesters. I don't feel regret, but I feel guilty. That girl's crying just because she's young. The husband says, I'm so excited to be a father, and yet if you want to have an abortion, I'll support you all the way. Oh, how I wish she could have walked into a Christian pregnancy center instead of an abortion clinic. I wish she would have found a place that would have listened to her, that would have validated the reality of her monsters, but helped her to see the baby was not one of them. If only she would have found a place that didn't stand to make a profit off of her decision to have an abortion but instead would have offered care for her without charging her a penny? What if she had found a place like the Fire Center? What if she'd have been able to have that child and give that child a chance? What if a family out there desperate to have a child would have been able to adopt that little one? She would have been able to have her school, go on her education, chase her career she wanted to, and that baby would have been given a shot. Let me tell you something. Creating an adoption plan for a child is not easy. An adoption is not the ideal situation. What God wants is for a man and a woman to get married, and then once they're married, to come together in union and to create a child and to stay married for the rest of their lives and to give that child support, and more importantly, to show that child the gospel as two people agree not to quit on one another. That's the ideal. Sometimes that ideal is broken, and situations like adoption can become an option, but we should never confuse this church that adoption is some easy thing. It is incredibly hard for a woman to do. For a mother to create an adoption plan for her child is incredibly difficult. It is emotionally stressful. It is a challenge. So I don't want you to hear me saying right now, oh, that's a quick, easy fix. Because it's not. If you're single and you're pregnant, they'll tell you you have three options. And none of them are good. Parenting is hard. An adoption plan is hard. And abortion also is hard. That's why we need places like the church. That's why we need places like these pregnancy centers that come alongside and they help and they support We want to work to show these women that while their monsters may be real, those monsters are merely overweight house cats compared to the roaring lion that is our God. We listen carefully, we educate truthfully, and we guide skillfully, and we resource thoroughly. And in doing so, we are sometimes blessed to see God use that availability to help a woman see the truth about those circumstantial monsters screaming for death, and yet she finds the power to choose life. Sometimes, sometimes, a girl shows up to us, not always, but sometimes, and it looks a little bit like this. they got a video in the back. I want you to watch Jasmine's story. Hi, my name is Jasmine. I'm currently 25, and I have three kids, and I'm currently pregnant now. 
I started coming back to the fire center back in 2012. I was pregnant with my son Chance. He's currently five. And I didn't have no source of, I didn't know how to parent. And I came to the fire center and they got me through the newborn classes up until it's time for me to have my baby. At that time, when I walked in the fire center, I didn't have much support but my grandma. Um, I didn't have a car. I was catching the bus. Um, I didn't have any clothes for my baby. I didn't even start buying pampers for my baby. Um, but as I start coming to the fire center, I accumulated those things for my baby. I came in two weeks ago, and I wanted an abortion um, with the baby I'm pregnant with now. Um, everything was going left. I lost everything. I was homeless, sleeping in my car. Me and my three kids, I just didn't think that I could do it with a fourth one. Um, but I came in, I talked to Miss Susan. You know, she gave me some great tips to move forward. And I came in, I think a week later, and she helped me out with organizing and trying to help me with couponing and, you know, adoption. And um, with all that information that I, I got from her, I came back a week later, as I stated, and I felt way better. And I decided to keep my baby. The information that I got from the Fire was um, to keep pushing, to keep believing, to have faith, and know that um, everything will be okay as um, long as I'm getting the information and the um, support that I need. When I think about the Fire Center, what comes to my mind are people that love doing what they do, um, without a doubt. When you come in, it's just love automatically, and you don't feel anything else. They love doing what they're doing at the Fire Center. You know, over the years and over the courses, over the months and weeks, um, I grew each week at a time, and it made me to a better person. Sometimes. That's how the story goes. Did you see the monsters? Did you see the monsters? In 2012, it was self-doubt, saying she didn't know how to be a parent. And it was financial fear that she was going to have clothes or supplies for her baby. In 2018, that monster was a financial monster of homelessness and the fear of not being good enough because she already had other kids to care for. Guys, those beasts are real. And they can be frightening. I mean, who among us has not been beaten by doubt once or twice? Who among us hasn't been fearful of wondering where the money we needed was going to come from? I'm betting very few of us have faced homeliness, homelessness. But I've seen my wife fret over just how the nursery is going to look, getting a kid ready, and it's been stressful. I can only imagine if you don't know what home you're going to go to. But did you see? There was a team of people motivated by the love of Christ who were willing to fight alongside Jasmine, fight with her, come alongside her. She said, I met people that love what they do, and she spoke the truth. These are people who understand that God came down and loved them. And because God loved them, they're called to love others. They know the truth of Psalm 51. My favorite part of that video, if you saw it, is when she tries to hold back her smile when she says she decided to keep her baby. It's a beautiful moment. And that is what hope looks like when it's trying to burst through the darkness. That is a woman who is tasting victory. That is what the promised joy that comes in the morning looks like. That 
is a story of the gospel. A baby with life and a mother with joy, that's what we're aiming for. That's the proper picture of a redemption story. And in this story you just watched, you saw a woman who was tempted to take another person's life to address the consequences of sin. And then you saw a woman realize the solution was hopeless. Finally, you saw a woman lay down her life for her child. You saw the seeds of the gospel. Church, we are gathered together under the banner of God's love. We are God's people gathered to advance God's kingdom. We are warriors of light waging against the war of darkness. We are, like David, able to declare God's praise and teach transgressors His ways because Jesus came as a baby. He was crucified. He died and was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. And He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He had mercy on us. He blotted out our transgressions. He washed away our iniquity. He cleansed us from our sin. He cleansed us with hyssop. He washed us. He hid His face from our sin. He blotted out our iniquity. He created in us a pure heart. He renewed a right spirit. He did not cast away His presence from us. He did not take the Holy Spirit away from us. He restored the joy of our salvation. And He gave us a willing and sustaining spirit. That is what God gave us. That is what the cross bought us. That's what God has done. That's what the cross has won. That's why we gather together as one. And that's why we will fight for every unborn daughter and every unborn son. That's our mission. I want to close with one um, word of encouragement, one word of truth to one particular group of people that are in the room this morning. When you hear a sermon like this and we're talking about abortion, and we're calling it sin, and we're talking about the tragedy, and we're saying words like taking another's life and blood guilt, I know there are people that are sitting in this room this morning where abortion is a part of your past. And please let me speak to you and please hear this this morning. God absolutely, unequivocally loves you. I told you this ministry that I'm a part of is a ministry of converts, meaning it's a ministry of people who have come to realize that that part of their past was that. It was sin. And they have received the overwhelming love of God through the grace and forgiveness that was purchased through that cross on Calvary. I want to make sure that you hear in this morning, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And if abortion is a part of your story, if there is a child that was in your past that as you sit here this morning, you feel longing for, or you're wrestling with how to respond to that, can I encourage you to respond to the love of Christ the way that David did? And simply saying, God, before you is my sin, and yet your mercy has been granted to me. And God will blot out your transgressions. God will turn his face because he placed it on to Christ. This whole abortion problem that is in our society, I think, will end when the silenced army that is the post-abortive can come out and can declare to the world the truth of their story. And they can proclaim the love of Christ to the world and help people understand That abortion is not the answer. That a lifetime of missing birthdays. That a lifetime of wondering what could have happened. That a lifetime of feeling a weird sense of guilt and pain on the day that that baby was supposed to have been born. Those are not necessary. But instead, you can stand in the grace of Christ and point back to the cross and point back to your Savior and say, He has paid the price. He has covered my sin. And that is available to you. If you don't know the freedom of forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ, I implore you today to understand God loves you. 
God loves you enough that He sent His Son to pay the price for sin that you could not pay. And what God asks of you is that broken and contrite heart when it comes to your sin and a willingness to say, it is not me that will fix this, God, but you. And I will place my trust and my faith in you, God. I will depend on Christ to pay for my sin and to restore my relationship with you, God. I ask you to take God serious at His Word and to put your faith and to put your trust to depend on Christ fully for your salvation. And again, if there's those of you in this room that abortion is a part of your story, please don't keep it secret any longer. Talk to your pastor. Talk to somebody in your community group or your Bible studies or whatever you have. Bring it to light. Let God heal it. You do not need to hide any longer. You do not need to hide and cower in shame. Let the love and grace of our Father cover over even that sin and let Him unlock you. Let Him send you Let Him use you. Let Him redeem it. All those ifs are true of you. Then, what might God do with your story if you trust Him with it? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are bigger, stronger, greater, holier, wiser than any person sitting in this place. But you are good. And only you are good. It is in you we find mercy. It is in you we find grace. It is in you we find the endurance to let some total stranger come into our church and talk to us about such a challenging issue, Lord. And so I am trusting, Father, I am, that Holy Spirit, you say that you are the one who convicts of sin and of righteousness, that you are the one who loves and redeems and restores. And Lord, I'm asking, trusting, that you are doing just that. Lord, I pray that if anyone in this room heard condemnation void of grace, Lord, that you would silence the lies that would tell them they are disqualified or unworthy, Lord, but you would point them to the cross and say, yes, their sin is real, but even more so, your love is real as well. That nobody would hear just condemnation, but they would hear mercy, Lord. But that at the same time, no one in this room would only hear mercy, Lord, and feel the freedom to run, keeping their sin buried and hidden inside themselves, Lord. But they would feel the confidence and the conviction to, just as David did, allow sin to be confessed and brought to light, Lord, so that you would heal and restore it. Lord, any of the nonsense that might have come out of my mouth that wasn't of you, that didn't bring glory to your name, I pray that it would be stricken from our minds, Lord, and that we would gravitate instead to the truth. That if nothing else, that we would go back and just simply reflect on David's words from your holy word in Psalm 51. And we would find you in them. That we might find freedom from whatever sin entangles us, whatever sin has us, whatever is keeping us silenced or quiet or hidden or in shame. Lord, and we would find the freedom that was bought through the cross. It is in your son's holy name that we pray, in the only name under heaven or earth by which man can be saved, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our prayer is that God will take this word and plant good eternal seeds deep into your soul. Father, we pray for your great wisdom to infiltrate this listener, draw them to you, and take them gently down the road to their next destination in life. And if you're in need of a home church, we invite you to join us at Christian Heritage Church on Shera Road in Tallahassee, Florida. A multicultural church founded on the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. For a worship service where the presence of God has first place, you're invited to Christian Heritage Church. Sunday morning service is at 10.30, Wednesday evening at 7, plus youth group and kid power and small groups and more. For all the latest information, visit our website, 
chctoday.com.